Open with me in your Bible to James chapter 5. James chapter 5 will be in verses 7 through 11 this morning. James 5, 7 through 11, hear the word of the Lord to us this morning. Therefore, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brothers, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brothers, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Let's pray. Father, according to your kindness and the riches that are ours in Christ, we pray that by the power of your Spirit that you would strengthen our hearts now to enable us to patiently wait for the return of our King. Help us to do so with eager anticipation and a longing for this world to be made new, following the newness that we ourselves will enter into. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the things that we might want to do before we even begin to look at the details of this passage is to consider the connection that these verses, that is 5, 7 through 11, has with the preceding verses, 5, 1 through 6. If you were here last week, we were in 5, 1 through 6, where there is sort of a prophetic statement that James is making to the wicked rich, right? Those who are wicked and rich, who are hoarding their wealth not using it for any good thing, and along with the hoarding of the wealth, also harming the poor. And the message at, at root, or at the, at the base of what James is driving at in those verses, is that all of this hoarding of money, all of this harming of the poor and the defenseless and the weak, all of this is being done in the last days, moments before Christ breaks onto the scene and enters into judgment with every living, breathing being. What a waste, what a foolish pursuit to amass riches and to abuse people when at the return of Christ, your riches, your wealth will mean absolutely nothing. Now, along with that, we... we observed or acknowledged that one of the reasons that James says this is not simply to castigate the rich, because more likely than not, the very people that James is talking about are not going to hear anything that James has to say. It's going to be the Christians who are listening and nodding in agreement with verses 1 through 6. So, although the prophetic word is spoken against the rich who are persecuting and making life miserable for the poor and for the weak, They need to hear this because it's a reminder of the fact that the Lord will 
at his predetermined time, enter into judgment and make all things right. He will settle all accounts. And that brings us into verses 7 through 11. So the question is, if in light of verses 1 through 6, God is ultimately going to enter into judgment, he will make all of the wrongs right, he will judge the wicked rightly and justly and fully, what will poor, weak, suffering Christians do until then? And James gives us the answer. Be patient. That's probably not the answer that most of us would want to hear. Ultimately, what James is saying is, be patient, that is, wait. Notice you have at least four times in this passage the mention of patience, which is the key to what James is saying. So, in verse 7, Therefore, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. As you go down a little bit further, verse 10, As an example, brothers, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Be patient. Wait. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Be patient. Now, one of the things that we want to do is we want to see why it is that Christians ultimately are called in this passage to be patient and a little more what the, the nature of this patience is, because I don't think that what James has in mind is a passive kind of patience, where we're sitting, sitting around twiddling our thumbs. So we'll, take, we'll try to take this in three parts. Number one, we want to just clarify and drive home the very basic, clear statement that James makes in verse 7, which is that we are to be patient until Christ returns. Be patient until Christ returns, number one. Number two, in verses 8 and 9, we are to be patient but not passive. We're actually doing something while we're patient. And then number three is the reminder that your patience will be rewarded. It will be worth it in the end. So be patient until Christ's return. Be patient, not passive. And your patience will be rewarded. So James says in verse 7, Therefore be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. If someone came to you struggling in life, whether it be with marriage or with work or with an oppressive boss or something like that, how would, how would you encourage them? How would you finish that statement if it were put to you? Be patient, Susie. Be patient, Bob. I don't know if anyone's named Bob. Joe, whoever. Be patient until... Fill in the blank. Be patient until the next election... Be patient until we get a new president, or a new congressman, or a new governor. Be patient until you get the promotion. Be patient until the next pay period. Be patient until 
The kids are out of the house. Be patient until the stock market recovers. Do you you see? How do you encourage someone who is particularly weak and vulnerable? Be patient until, James says, until Christ returns. Be patient until the coming of Christ. Is that where your ultimate hope is? When you struggle, when you suffer, when you suffer specifically for your faith, and let's say, just to clarify a little bit further, although I think James does have in mind very specifically the fact that he is encouraging Christians who are suffering because of their vulnerability, because of their faith, right? After announcing coming judgment on the rich, on the rich and the wicked, he says in verse 7, therefore, brothers, because you know that judgment day is coming, therefore you be patient. Wait for that judgment. But because by the end of the passage, he's using Job as an example, Job was not, at least in the way that we think of it, was not persecuted for his faith. Job suffered for his faith, suffered sickness, suffered the loss of his family, suffered doubt. So let's just say up front that whether the the suffering that you're encountering right now is at the hands of another person, then you might be able to label that as some sort of mild persecution, or whether your suffering is due to bodily weakness, illness, or some sort of loss of life from someone close to you, whatever it is, whatever your suffering is, the question still comes back and is still the same. When you find yourself suffering at the hands of other people, or suffering through life, what are you waiting for? What are you hoping for? If our ultimate hope, when we struggle, when we sorrow, when we grieve, when we suffer, if our ultimate hope is found in anything in this world as we know it now, we are answering that question wrong. For James to say, be patient until the coming of the Lord, right? The coming of Christ. The, the, the whole, there's a whole freight of New Testament imagery and concepts that are being brought to bear on this. So when Jesus is crucified and buried and raised again, he appears to his disciples and he says, all authority has been granted to me on heaven and earth. You go, you make disciples. And then what does Jesus do? He ascends up into the heavens to be seated on his throne, ruling and reigning until he returns again. That is to say, he ascends beyond the bounds, beyond the holds of this world, and we are waiting for him to come from heaven into this world, this existence that we know, to make all things right. That is to say that our hope as Christians is not found in anything or anyone in this world, but in someone who exists and lives and rules and reigns outside of this world. If you were to say, be patient until, and you can point to something in this life, something that you can touch or taste or smell or feel, you're answering the question wrong. 
Be patient until the coming of Christ. Christ is your hope. Not a political party. Christ is your hope. Not a philosophy. Christ is your hope. Not another person. I don't care how godly or spiritual they are. Christ is your hope. No one is going to save you or deliver you from the troubles of this life but Christ. And let me, if I, if I can, just for a moment here, address, I, I don't know, maybe there is someone here in this room who would fall into this category. Maybe you find yourself at this stage in your life not necessarily saying, I am waiting or hoping for Fill in the blank. You're not waiting for anything. You're comfortable. You're satisfied. You're content. May I suggest to you that if you are satisfied and content in this life, in this world, that you may actually be in more danger than anyone else. Because you're satisfied and you're content with what this world has to offer. You find nothing to grieve over. You find nothing to mourn over. You feel no poverty in your soul. You're happy. You're content. Your heart is satisfied. It doesn't long for anything that this world cannot provide. If that's you, you are in dangerous, dangerous territory. The kindest thing that God could do to you is to give you a holy discontent that you cannot shake, a desperation that can only be set to rest by bending the knee to Christ. It's Christ that we're waiting for. It's Christ that we're being patient for. But notice also, the the point is not simply to say that we are waiting for the coming of Christ because Christ exists outside of this world, so therefore our hope, what we're waiting for, is something otherworldly. That is true. But there is a sense in which, even with the first illustration that we have in verse 7, where part of what we're being encouraged to remember and to recall is that this patient waiting that we exhibit is, is not a passiveness, right? So he uses the example of a farmer in verse 7. The farmer waits for the precious or the valuable produce of the soil, being patient about it. Is a farmer passive? Right? Most of us probably did not grow up on a farm in this day and age. Some of the members here did grow up on a farm or knew people who lived on a farm, and they know that the very last person on the face of the earth who is passive is a farmer. (laughs) One amen. Farmers are some of the hardest working people that you will ever find. A farmer has to go out and he has to clear 
the field. He's got to plow the field. He's got to break it up. He's got to throw seed. He's got to plant. He does all of this for days and weeks and even months at a time. And at the end of the day, though, the very thing that he is waiting to see, that is a harvest, a produce, the fruit of his labor, he has absolutely no control over. He labors and he works. But at the end of the day, the farmer knows, if God doesn't cause my labor to be fruitful, I'm dead. This call to be patient until the coming of Christ does not suggest that we become passive and that we do nothing while we wait. At the very least, we'll see in just a moment here that one of the things that we ought to be doing as we're patiently waiting for Christ to return is preparing ourselves for His return. But God has given us work to do. And even in the work that we do, even though we may not see immediately the outcome that we would desire it still remains true that all of what we hope for and all of what we desire as Christians is only going to be provided when Christ returns. Listen, parents and grandparents, those of you who labor and weep and pray over a child or over a distant spouse, It may be that you never see the fruit of your labor in this life. There's no guarantee. In fact, it may just be not just for the struggling parent or spouse, but for any of us as Christians as we bear witness to the saving power of Christ, for those who are close to us, for those whom we work with or share the classroom with, it may, not, it may be that we see little to no fruit in all of the labor that we do. We're merely plowing the field and preparing the ground. In fact, it may actually be that in the Lord's providence, you will be laid in the ground before the fruit begins to come out. You will throw your seed, you will plant, and then you yourself will be planted in the ground, and you will not see the fruit of your labor until you yourself are raised from the dirt. If that is the case, what you are being reminded of is that your hope is not found in this life. Your hope is not found in any other person or program, your hope is being found in Christ. And the only guarantee that you have that your labor and your work will mean anything is because God has ordered it in such a way that your labor will bear fruit. You will see a harvest to your work when Christ returns. Be patient. Number two, be patient but not passive. Isn't it interesting then that when you go to verse 8, 
after commanding us to be patient until the coming of Christ, after using the example of the hardworking farmer who labors and yet still is reduced to patiently waiting on God to provide rain. Verse 8, you too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Now, there are probably at least two things that you could say just at first glance to this. The fact that the statement in verse 8 would be, be patient, and then you follow that immediately with, strengthen your heart, probably is a good indication that it is not easy to be patient. That's why your heart needs to be strengthened. Your heart is not naturally wired to wait. Your heart and my heart are naturally wired to crave and to desire to long, but to long for our desires to be satisfied immediately, not to wait. And yet there's also something at the same time, a a little bit of an odd perspective, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do you think about the fact that at any moment, all of this will be done? School is over, work is done, we enter into the rest and the joy of our reward. Strengthen your hearts. How does, how does that happen? How do you strengthen your heart? Do you just tell your heart, heart, be strong? Do you find that that works for you? If it does, please come talk to me. I have yet to find that it works with my heart. Hold your place here and go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We want to look at two places where this same verb, this strengthened verb, shows up in 1 Thessalonians 3. So start with me in verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to skip down towards the end of the chapter. So in verses 1 and 2, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. There it is. I'm I'm not sure how your version reads, but in verse 2, that last line, we sent Timothy, God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen you. And then skip down towards the latter part of the chapter, pick up at verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may strengthen your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Do you see the overlap or the similarity? 
Paul is writing to a group of Christians who are suffering severely because of their faith. James is writing to a group of people who are also suffering and vulnerable in no small part because of their faith, or at least because of their social standing in life. And in both cases, what James is very concerned about his audience doing and what Paul wants to happen for his audience in Thessalonica is that their hearts be strengthened. So go back up to verse 2, 1 Thessalonians 3, 2. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. How are the Thessalonians going to be strengthened in 1 Thessalonians 3, 2? They're going to be strengthened by Timothy just because Timothy shows up and says, Hey, I'm Timothy. And then everyone falls back, Oh, I'm so strengthened now. Yes, going to be strengthened by Timothy, but strengthened how? How is Timothy going to strengthen them? The Word. There it is. Paul sends Timothy to struggling Christians in Thessalonica, whom he fears may be wavering in their faith because life is so incredibly difficult for them. And he sends Timothy to them, and he says, Timothy, give them the word. Preach the gospel to them. Preach Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. Let them know that this existence is light and momentary compared with the weight of glory that comes with eternity. Timothy, do it face to face. Paul could have sent the letter and just be, been done with that. Do you, do you see that even? Paul is not content with merely the letter being sent, but he wants Timothy in person to go with the letter and to spend time with them. Okay, yes, 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 yes. Good for the Thessalonians. Here's the point. If you want your, your heart to be strengthened, may I suggest to you that God has designed His kingdom on this earth, in the here and now, in such a way that one of the primary means by which He goes about doing that is by doing what you're doing right now. That every Sunday... You say, I'm going to gather with my brothers and sisters, and we're going to be reminded by hearing God's Word that this life is temporary, that it is fleeting, that momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And you need personal flesh and blood interaction for that. You could take your Bible and read it at home. By the way, parenthetically, you ought to be reading your Bible at home, of course. 
But if Paul is not content merely to send the letter and to be done with it, but says, no, 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 with the letter, they also need Timothy to go. They need to spend time together talking over God's Word. How much more do you think you need that along with the Thessalonians in this day and age? You think you're sufficient? You're just a, a greater, a better grade of Christian than has ever existed before that you can strengthen your heart on your own? Don't be so foolish. One of the ways that God intends to strengthen you to enable you to be patient, to wait on the coming of the Lord, is by gathering with your brothers and sisters to sit under the preaching and teaching of God's Word, to pray together, to sing together, so that your mind would be renewed and so that your heart would be strengthened and so that you can go out and say, I can do it for another week. But then down towards the bottom of the passage, I'm sorry, I'm still in 1 Thessalonians 3. Notice the second way that Paul intends for the Thessalonians to be strengthened is what he says in verses 12 and 13. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that He may establish your hearts without blame and holiness, or so that He may strengthen your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. So that who may strengthen your hearts? He. Christ, the Lord. Now listen, anytime in the New Testament you come across phrasing like this, now may the Lord, dot, 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 or may God, right, you ought to think that's prayer language. That's a New Testament writer expressing what he wants, what he desires, what he would ask for God to do. Simple point being this, if you want your heart to be strengthened so that you will be able to patiently wait for the coming of Christ, so that your heart will not be pulled astray to put its hope or its confidence in any other thing or any other person, one of the things that you need to do along with your regular gathering together with God's people, spending time in the Word, is that you need to be praying and asking that Christ would strengthen your heart. More often than not, the things that we are most desperate for are the things that we will pray for. Sadly, the things that we tend to be most desperate for are things that more often than not are limited to this temporal life. I'm most desperate to get over this cold. I'm most desperate to get a better job. I'm most desperate to have an easy life. What does any of that mean if at the end of the day your heart is not able to withstand the pressures and the lures and the temptations of this life so that rather than patiently waiting on your Savior and King, you begin to drift and you fall away? What good will any of that other stuff do? One of the best things that you and I can do is to go in prayer and to say, my heart is weak. 
It's far too easily satisfied with cheap, shallow things. God, look at this heart. What are you going to do with this heart? Are you going to leave it? Are you going to leave it to me to fix? That's not going to happen. You've got to do this, Lord. You've got to do it. Otherwise, your promises fall short. I think God loves to hear prayers like that. He loves to hear the humility of His people crying out for a work that only God can do. Because if it's a work that only God can do through the power of Christ by the Spirit, the only one who ever gets any credit or glory for it is God. Number three. Your patience will be rewarded. In verses 10 and 11, we read, As an example, brothers, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Two different people that he mentions here, the prophets and Job. As an example, brothers, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. You understand that one of the reasons that the prophets suffered was precisely because they spoke in the name of the Lord. Right? Jeremiah is arrested, put under house arrest. When house arrest isn't sufficient, he's thrown into a pit. Keeps speaking, keeps preaching. Jeremiah, don't you know that you're in the pit because you won't shut up? Right, do you see? In other words, the, the patient waiting on the coming of Christ, once again, does not mean that we are passive bystanders. It is possible to be patient as we wait for the coming of Christ, and as the prophets did, and the New Testament apostles, and the early church, and the church through church history, to, sp to still speak prophetically to the evils that we see going on in the world around us. You can do both. The problem comes into play when we think that our speaking or our prophetic witness is the means by which all of this is going to be turned around. And that seems to run a bit off of what we're seeing here in this passage. That is, what's going to turn all this around is not ultimately my prophetic witness, but once again, the return of Christ. But he says at the, at the very beginning of verse 11, we count those blessed who endured. Did anyone consider Jeremiah to be blessed while he was in the pit? Anyone? Okay, yeah. Probably say with pretty good confidence. No, no one considered Jeremiah to be blessed when he was in the pit. In the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and New Testament, one of, the, one of the teachings or traditions that began to filter through about the way the prophet Isaiah met his end is that he was hunted by the king because, again, he was speaking for the Lord. 
When he was running from the king, he hid in a hollowed-out log. They found him in the log, and as the tradition goes, they sawed him in half while he was in the log. That's how he died. Tradition says, anyway. Would anyone consider Isaiah to be blessed if that's the way that he really met his end? No one does in the moment. But that's the point. We count those blessed who endured past tense. You don't reach your full blessing. We don't get our full reward until we have endured to the full, until we have endured to the end. None of the suffering that we encounter in this life looks like blessing while we're encountering it. And then you have Job. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. You have heard of the endurance of Job and you have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. That, that word there, the outcome of the Lord's dealing, is the word telos. It means sort of like the goal or the end. In other words, what seems to be suggested here is not merely that the incredible blessings that Job got at the end of his life was just, just happened to be the way that it shook out. Lucky for Job. But that that was the goal or the design from the very beginning. That the goal or the end that God had determined for Job was that he would not only go through suffering, but that he would enter into great reward. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that no matter what it is that you're encountering right now, your suffering, your sorrow, your affliction is not accidental. It's not chaotic but that God in His mercy and compassion has so designed your life that even in the sorrow and the suffering, He has decided and He has determined that the end of all of this for you will be nothing but riches and reward and rest. That may be one of the reasons why the Lord allows us to suffer is not because he doesn't care, but because he cares so much. None of us would choose suffering for ourselves. None of us would. But God, in his wisdom and in his mercy and in his grace, as hard as it is to say this, sometimes says, I will give to them what they would not take for themselves because this is the only way that I am able to give them a reward that they would otherwise miss in the end. Let me caution you or clarify just for a moment here because if you're like me, if you've read this passage before, you get to the end where it talks about the, the example of Job and you say, well, yeah, well, well, look, Job suffered, lost his family, lost his health, lost his friends, lost all of this, but at the end of the day, but he still got double, triple, what's, what's the word for seven times over? I don't even know what that is, right? Blessed seven times over for all that he lost. 
You say, well, where is that for me? I'm waiting for my seven times blessing. Don't miss the point. The point is not that you will get all of your reward before this life is over. The point of using Job as an example is to simply say that God has designed our lives in such a way that it will run to an ordered end. There will be suffering and sorrow first, but it will end, the story will end in joy and reward. The end for us in James 5 is not when we hit 60 or 70 years old. The end for us is what he says in the very first line of verse 7. Be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. That's the end for us. That's the joy. That's the reward. So it needs to be said that for all of the patience, all of the waiting that you do, don't fall victim to the idea that simply because you are being called to wait, that we are waiting for the return of Christ, that this world is going to leave us disillusioned, dissatisfied. Don't think that God does not see and God does not know. Every moment of your suffering and your sorrow is being kept with a meticulous accounting so that when the day of reward comes, you get everything and more than you can possibly imagine being restored to you in the riches of Christ, never to be taken away again. To end on an encouraging note, turn with me to Isaiah 40. To the weak and the weary, to the sorrowful and the suffering, hear these verses, Isaiah 40. Start with me in verses 9 and 10, and then we're going to go to verse 27 through 31. Isaiah 40, verse 9. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Can we say it this way? Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Edgewood, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord will come with might with his arm ruling for him, behold, his reward is with him and his recompense, his payment comes before him. Skip down with me to verses 27 through 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, why do you say, Christian, why do you say, Edgewood, and assert, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice that I deserve escapes the notice of my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. 
His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Be patient. Wait. It's going to be worth it. Strengthen your hearts. Persevere. Christ is coming. Let's pray. Father, look on us, a weak and feeble people, reconciled to you by the death and resurrection of your Son, not because of any works of righteousness that we have done, not by anything that we could do or say to earn favor with you, but because of your Son, we call out to you and we ask that in our time of waiting that you would strengthen us, that you would give us the ability to be patient and to continue to put our hope in the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that He is the one that we wait for, that He would become more and more our greatest desire and our true longing. Father, help us to grow more and more dissatisfied with the things of this world. Help those in our midst, Father, who are suffering significantly, who are sorrowing greatly, not to lose heart. Father, we would be so bold as to ask that even as they wait, that you would be abundantly kind and gracious to give them even small signs of your goodness and your faithfulness to them. Let them know, not only through material comforts, but let them know by the presence of your Spirit that you have poured out into our hearts, that you have not abandoned them or forsaken them. Father, help us to bear witness to the fact that more than any politician or program or any other pursuit, that the hope of your people is in the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's because of him that we're able to pray this. Amen.